I'm Chelsea Bay. And I'm Shay. Together, we are Fulfillment. Fulfillment is a storytelling event featuring local community leaders and entrepreneurs who share their personal journey towards fulfillment through vocation that will challenge you to come alive. The following stories are true and no one's identity has been protected. Here's Fulfillment Stories podcast number 33. Erin Anderson Whiting is the executive director of Parallel 45 Theater, the company she co-founded in 2010. Her 14-year career in nonprofit fundraising and development allows her to direct philanthropy to P45 and manage its general operations, nurturing the dream of a professional theater in northern Michigan into reality. Here's her story from the January 2017 event. Next up is Erin Anderson Whiting. Uh, she is the founder and executive director of Parallel 45, or P45. Um, and she's got some energy and some stories and um, quite a story for you. I woke up a few days ago with a little allergy tickle happening in my throat, so I'm going to try not to hack through this entire thing, and if I have to stop and take a sip of water, I apologize. I'm just going to leave that right there, just in case. My name is Erin Anderson Whiting, and I'm a complete and total fraud. At least that's how I felt for most of my life. It's called imposter syndrome. And it's a, real, it's a real thing. It's the belief that despite anything you've done, despite your accomplishments, you're actually unqualified and unfit to do what you're doing. And at any minute, you're probably going to be found out and exposed. <laughs> so here's an example. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit professional theater here in Traverse City called Parallel 45, P45. And uh, that's, a, that's a fact. It's pretty indisputable. But imposter syndrome kind of smirks at that and says, yeah, but you shouldn't be. <laughs> and the only way I can explain it is it's like that feeling if you ever get stopped going through customs and you're not doing anything wrong. You, it's a routine check. They ask you, like, do you have citrus fruit or do you have soil samples? And you, you obviously don't have these things because you packed your own bag. <laughs> but suddenly you're like oh, do I? Oh, God. And you're like sweaty and over-explaining and you feel guilty and like, oh, they're going to find me out. I'm lying. That, that's sort of what it feels like. And I bring this up because I doubt I'm the only one in this room that feels that way <laughs> because I think it's extraordinarily common when people merge what they love with their vocation. And for years, I believed there was one vocation for everyone, sort of like destiny, this like fixed point and you can blame that on those inspirational posters in the dentist office <laughs> that you see, like, find your true self and follow your dreams, memes on social media. So I thought the great work of your life was finding that true self, like, just once. And then once you found it, the reward was this vocation that would follow that would just be a perfect match. So in that case, my story up here would go, I was born feeling passionate about XYZ, and I struggled through a bunch of mismatched vocations, and I now found the correct one, and I'm really fulfilled and happy at the end. But too often we judge ourselves if our story isn't that clear or that simple. And Parallel 45 changed that for me, 
how I thought about vocation and identity, but not in the sense that it was my destiny and now I have zero problems, but because I realized through the process of co-founding it and struggling and regretting and loving it and sometimes hating it, that the great work of your life isn't finding this one identity, this one vocation, but discovering how you uncover and how you maintain the best version of yourself, no matter what your vocation is. And then you have to give yourself permission to evolve. The idea that you love, that what you love to do and what you do for a living are separate things is something I believed till I was 15. And when I was a sophomore in high school, my parents made a huge financial sacrifice and they sent me to Interlochen Arts Academy. And I loved to write, and I was good at it, and I think they could see it was the only thing I actually cared about in that like, soul-crushing black hole of girls and adolescents. <laughs> and at Interlochen, I learned an amazing thing. People, real, actual people, not just in movies, could be artists as a job and as a life. Nobody was there to be a hobbyist. These immensely talented people my own age, they were in it for life. And I was overcome with the beauty of this. And I still am. I owe that place a, a huge debt. I loved being a writer. And I decided, this is what I'm going to do with my life. That's it. Artist. Done. Figured it out. 15. <laughs> and it was also at Interlochen that I fell in love with theater and discovered the power of live performance. Sitting in the dark with strangers and taking this journey that's somehow both collective and universal and personal, and individual, all at once. Theater took what I loved about writing and it externalized it, but it had the same goal, which was to allow other people to see the world from somebody else's point of view, and I was hooked. So now I was sure, okay, vocation and identity, they're not meant to be separate. They are, you know, you put them together and that's how you create a meaningful life. And I took this sort of staunch, self-assured, opinion, you know, at all of 17 years old. And I, I took that to Sarah Lawrence. And I had an amazing four years. I studied writing in Middle Eastern history. And it was sort of an extension of my interlocking days, but with the added bonus of being in New York and being this really great adventure. And then my artist identity really got challenged because I needed a job if I was going to stay in New York after college. So I took a sales position with the big publishing house, Penguin Putnam. And I did endure some eye-rolling and a little disappointed looks from some of my artist friends, my mainstream job that I'd taken. But the job was really good. I got free books, all the books I wanted. I got to meet Dolly Parton and work with her on her imagination library. Total highlight. And it turns out I was actually good at special projects in spreadsheets. And I even paid my rent. I just sort of felt guilty for enjoying it, like I was a sellout. So eventually I left New York and my three roommates and our awesome duplex in Queens and my burgeoning credit card debt, and I moved back to northern Michigan. And I missed the beauty. I missed Lake Michigan and trees, and I missed solitude. And I decided that it was here I was going to get back to writing and really reclaim myself as an artist. And I was still clinging to this idea that I had to like, get back to something that there was some true identity that I'd strayed away from. And I took a job at the Grand Travers Regional Land Conservancy as a fundraiser. And I had no idea that this was an actual job, 
until I got there, that people actually got paid asking other people for money for cool things. But it's sort of similar to being a magician for a living, and then I met one of those and married that person. So there are all kinds of jobs. And I loved the conservancy, and I still do, and the people were committed and inspiring, and I felt like I could make a difference there. During this time, I was traveling to Chicago a lot for work, and my best friend, Kit McKay, who's here tonight, is a brilliant theater director who'd gone to Interlochen with me and gone to Sarah Lawrence, and we'd lived together in New York. She was now in Chicago getting her master's in directing at Northwestern. And when I would visit, we would have these epic meals. Like, our thing was we would go out and just have these hours-long meals where we would order so much food that they would have to bring extra tables. Like, the wait staff would have to, like, set them up around our table. And we would just sit there sort of daring the wait staff to say anything about it. And uh, we would eat it all. <laughs> and it was sort of obscene, but I think it was about two things. One, we, we love food. And the other thing is, I think we felt restricted at the time. Our lives were sort of half-realized. I just ended a, a brief first marriage, for instance. And the grandiosity of these meals, it was the perfect escape. And it sort of opened up space to talk about the future. And in a way, I think their audacity helped facilitate our big idea. So Kit was explaining the typical career path of a director, and she kind of stopped and said, but I don't have to do that. I just want to make good art and live someplace that I love. And I'd been harboring this fantasy that she'd move back to northern Michigan, so I jumped on this. I was a fundraiser, and I knew about nonprofit admin, and she was this talented director with great theater industry connections. We'd do it in Traverse City. We'd build a world-class repertory theater. We'd bring actors and directors and designers from around the world and love where we lived and control our lives. And we wouldn't wait until we were in a safe financial place or it was a retirement project. We were going to do it now and just see how far we could get. So most people that found theaters have actual money because <laughs> all the artists involved actually have to be paid, for one thing. It's required, but it's also something we believe in deeply, paying artists for their work. But we had zero money, so we raised it. And in that first year, that $14,000 felt huge. And we staged this immersive reimagining of our town. And it was pretty bare bones on the production end, but it had a brilliant directorial concept from Kit, fierce acting talent, and people responded. First of all, they actually showed up, which was great. And second of all, for the most part, they actually liked it. We wanted to provide a fresh perspective, a new lens, a reason for people to come to these shows we were producing, to make it relevant if we were going to ask our audience to invest their time. We weren't afraid of well-known titles, but what we wanted ultimately became our tagline, familiar stories for the adventurous mind. We wanted to make people sit up and engage with the material. So we did another show, and another, and another, and we kept pushing the envelope with staging and concepts and material, and sometimes it felt a little edgy for Traverse City, but we kept taking risks and asking our audience to be generous with us and to come along for the ride, and they did. At this point, I'd left the Land Conservancy, and I was working as a fundraiser back at Interlochen now. And although I was meeting my benchmarks and hitting my goals and all that, uh, one day my boss sat me down and told me, 
She didn't think I wanted my job enough. I didn't want it enough. And actually, the, the word she used, I will never forget, was I didn't have the fire in the belly for this job. Hopefully she's not here. But if she was, I could say thank you. Because even though I was so angry at this, and I was really pissed, I was like, fire in the belly, what the hell does that mean? She was totally right, because I didn't have it for that job. But I had it for Parallel 45. And I had no choice but to quit. And it was hard letting go of a job I really liked. And my salary, and my health benefits, and my pension, because Interlochen still has a pension. But harder was letting go of this idea I had of myself. I was a driven development professional, and P45 was the sacred art side of me. Now my little art baby was going to become my job, and I didn't know if I could be faithful to both. So I quit Interlochen and took two freelance jobs, but I threw every ounce of myself into P45. And 18 months later, with the help of Rotary Charities and many generous people, I was finally able to draw an actual salary. And this is the part where it feels like the story should end. You know, that was it. I got a salary. Donors came out of the woodwork and audience just bursting at the seams and a wealthy patron died peacefully in her sleep and left us $100 million at the end. <laughs> not, how, not how it worked out. Actually, then the real work began and it got really hard. When you start something like this, you have these ridiculous, simplistic dreams of what success looks like, like sweeping into the northern Michigan art scene and everyone magically understanding the work we're doing and being super excited, even grateful for it, like it was just what they'd been waiting for, just sitting around waiting for that avant-garde theater to show up. <laughs> Thanks. It's naive, but it's also the naivete you need if you're going to actually start something or you'd never start anything at all. We had a growing audience base, we had committed supporters, but I still had naysayers taking me aside saying, you can't do this in Traverse City. You're too ambitious. People here don't like this kind of thing. We already have a theater. Why are you paying a bunch of artists who should be volunteering? Even the old standby, who do you think you are? And there was never enough money. But I'd gotten what I wanted, right? I'd found a way to combine that left and right brain thing into this dream job. But I learned that Getting what you think you want is often an invitation for the universe to test you. Because running any business, a nonprofit business, for-profit business, is really hard. We were doing four shows a year. We were con contracting with more than 50 artists from New York and L.A. and London and right here in Traverse City. We had seasoned subscribers. We were getting some media recognition. But I was responsible for a few hundred thousand dollars in wages for these immensely talented artists who were making real sacrifices to be here. And if I failed to do this, I was going to be failing them all. So I slid into this place where I was completely consumed with P45. And for my friends that had to endure this, I apologize. I was working 80-hour weeks, and there was no shortage of urgent work necessary to keep the company going, but I was also doing things like answering non-urgent emails you know, at midnight and taking my laptop on vacations and during my brother's wedding doing grant proposals on my downtime. It was not good. But I believed I couldn't scale things back because my crazy type A personality told me that once you've had a little bit of success, anything else isn't neutrality but failure and I was going to fail everyone. 
So I was exhausted and I was on edge and I was snappy and distracted and I wasn't present in parts of my life. And I'd become this self-centered, myopic zealot for theater. I wasn't being good to the people I loved or to myself and I was someone I didn't even want to be. And in the end, it took my dog and my husband to rescue me. My husband had been lobbying really hard to get a dog. I was not a dog person. They were freedom-busting and messy and no, and I wasn't going to do it. And then I met this dog that my husband um, found as a stray, and something totally snapped inside me. And it was dog love. Intense. (laughs) Real. And I was obsessed with my dog in his own right, but I was equally blown away by the fact that I got so much joy out of something I once felt so negative about. And I had this disconcerting feeling of what if I didn't actually know myself at all? What else was I completely certain and completely wrong about myself? Now, we were watching a lot of Downton Abbey at this time, and um, my husband has a serious crush on Maggie Smith, so he's always quoting her, but this really applies. And he said, what's the point of living if we don't let life change us? And I'd allowed this closed-mindedness to creep into my life and become too attached to this idea of myself. I thought being authentic meant being absolute in everything. So I had to give myself permission to evolve and to let life change me. It was okay to love the boring work, the administrative work, as much as the creative. It didn't make me a counterfeit artist. And it was okay to let go of the extreme unhealthy pressure to keep P45 alive. It didn't make me neglectful or less passionate. And this permission unlocked me, and I felt free. And I was ready to get to work. And it's the hardest, most rewarding, most frustrating, best work I've ever done. And at this moment in our country, it feels so timely. I absolutely understand the arts sometimes need to take a back seat to more urgent realities, but they're also essential to an intelligent, humane, and thinking democracy. And we need to fight to keep them funded and to keep them unrestricted and uncensored. So I have two challenges for you. One, give yourself permission to evolve. It can be really hard, but don't judge yourself. If you want to set something down temporarily or permanently, don't think you have to stick with it because it's who you are. Allow yourself to be full of contradictions and dualities. And two, don't confuse your identity and your vocation. I was looking for this perfect vocation that would take away the uncertainty that turns out that's just being a human being. And vocation can't solve these things but what it can do is help you be comfortable with them. And one of the reasons we sometimes feel like imposters is because we believe there's one right way to be us. This unchanging, absolute, real us we're always searching for or trying to get back to. But maybe it's not about finding your way back, but who we really are is waiting for us if we allow ourselves to go forward. Thank you.